0: If you'd open your Bibles to Nahum 1 tonight, we will be looking at verses 6 to 15, which say this, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But, With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are... At full strength, and likewise many, even so, they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired scriptures and your people. We pray that you would use this text to accomplish what it's designed to accomplish. Lord, as we work our way through it, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin tonight with a quote from George Washington. George Washington. Concerning the celebration of Thanksgiving, which isn't that far away, he made this statement back in 1789. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor, And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committed requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. There was a time in this country when the leaders of the nation thought like that. There was a time in this country when the leaders of the nation realized the importance of the nation being in a right relationship with God. There was a time when people realized if we have the blessings of God, we'll prosper. But if we don't have the blessings of God, we are doomed. That time is long gone. The vast majority of people do not care anything about pleasing the Lord. And a sight for an example, God has made two genders, male and female, and you can teach your children it doesn't matter. In fact, if you don't like your gender, seek to change it. That's where we're at today in the United States of America. So the message that Nahum presents to Nineveh and the message that Nahum presents to Assyria is one, quite honestly, we need in this country. And what Nahum says is God's people need to know that God is going to track down and destroy enemies, but at the same time, he'll protect and prosper his people who are his allies. Now, this is a hard-hitting book aimed straight at Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. This was the place of power. But as hard-hitting as this is, it's a book that also is a comfort for God's people who take refuge in him. Now, Nineveh was the capital city where the leaders of the nation lived. The problem is they weren't interested in God. They weren't interested in the word of God at all. They lived their lives with no fear of the Lord. They lived their lives with no concern for God's word. God says, you need to know this truth. It is on the same course, our nation is on the same course, in my opinion, as that of Nineveh, and they need to know this truth. And there are seven revelatory facts that God's people and God's enemies need to know. And we'll see them right in the text. First of all, God is a God of anger and wrath. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the burning of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Now people need to understand this about God. There is a terrifying side to the living God. And this is not just Old Testament theology. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is slow to anger, but he does anger. And if God reaches a point where he gets angry to the level of pouring out his wrath, that individual, that city, that nation will cease to exist on this earth. Now, verse 6 could not be any clearer on this point. Naam asked two questions which are both based on what he says in the opening verses. God is majestically sovereign. God is the one who controls everything. So he asked two rhetorical questions, and the answer is, if God gets angry, you have no chance of survival. You will either submit to this truth by your will, or you will submit to this truth against your will. It's your choice. It's your decision. It's this nation's choice. It's this nation's decision. You either submit by your will or you will submit to it against your will. The first question is, who can stand before his indignation? That's question number one. Now, this question really is something that should bring every person under conviction, at least some conviction, because it says nobody has a chance of standing before the indignation of God. Now, Job So believe that personally that he asked God, don't enter into judgment with thy servant because no man living will be justified. He realized there's this indignation side to God. And the word indignation is a word that means to be angry, to be enraged against someone because of something evil to the point where he curses someone. So Nahum's question is when somebody has angered God to the level to the point where he is enraged, When someone has angered God to the point that he's angry, to the point of cursing them with his sovereign curses, who can stand up against that? He just laid out the fact God has all nature in his control. You can't stand up against nature. He controls nature. You know that you don't have a chance going up against a tornado or a hurricane, and God controls that. So he says, who can stand against the indignation of God? Now, if this particular point doesn't drive a person to the cross of Jesus Christ to be saved, I don't know what will. Because if you face God based on your works without Jesus Christ, you're going up against his indignation and wrath. So his first question is, who can stand before his indignation? The second question is, who can endure the burning of his anger? That's what he says. Who can endure the burning of his anger? And those words refer to the fact that his anger is at a flaming level, a level where he's going to destroy something. So when one has angered God to the level where he is so enraged that he is about to destroy something, the question that is asked by Nahum is who can stand against him? And again, I go back to this. If you trust in your works to save you and you do not trust in Jesus Christ, who came here to pay the price so you could have a relationship with God, you are going to face God and you are going to face the wrath of God because you're not going to be able to stand against his anger. And he is angry at those that reject his son. The answer to both of these questions, of course, is no one. When God gets angry to a point where he's going to pour out his wrath in such a way that it's destructive, in such a way that it starts shattering rocks and mountains, no little man can do anything about it. Man is not in a position to stand up and fight God. Man can't square off against the burning anger and the burning will of God and win. When God reaches this point of anger and he targets someone, he targets a nation, he targets a city, he targets an individual with his anger, no person has a chance of beating him or stopping it. And people need to know that about God. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it is possible for a nation, a state, a city, a church, or an individual to so anger God... That he's enraged to the point that he says, I am done with you. I'm done putting up with you, and I'm done fooling around with you, and I'm going to pour out my judgment. Now, the time as near as I can determine that it took God to actually do it. What he describes in this chapter tonight was 38 years. In other words, from the time that Nahum said, this is what is going to happen, this is what God's going to do, it took 38 years, and it happened right to the very letter. So God is not a God who's fooling around here. The second revelatory fact is God is a God who's good. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, judgment is a very unique work of the Lord. And when God is pouring out his judgment, he targets enemies who are against him, and he is against them. But at the same time that he's doing that, he also does good things for people who trust in him. Now, this is one of the interesting things about the sovereignty of God. Trouble, days of trouble, can actually be days where we get the privilege of seeing God take care of us. God has an awesome destructive power, but he's good in that awesome destructive power. One commentator said God's enemies will be destroyed, but God's people will always be safe. And just as God is a God of anger and wrath, so he's a God who's good. He has awesome power, but he can use that awesome power in good ways to protect his people. He's good to those who take refuge in him. He's good to a specific group, by the way. These are people who love the Lord. These are people who believe the word of God. These are people who snuggle up to God in times of trouble. So when we find ourselves in times of trouble, the thing we want to do is draw near to the Lord and seek him to be our refuge because we stand to see God do good things for us. What this passage says is that God knows who takes refuge in him and he knows who doesn't. And when God is in the process of being angry to the point that he's pouring out his judgments and he's pouring out anger of wrath on people, he will be a strong protector of those who love him and his word. He'll be a strong protector of those who have taken refuge in him. And that fact becomes the basis for wanting to have a right relationship with God. I mean, this is the whole crux of one reason why we want to get serious about the scriptures and apply the scriptures. God is good to people that do that. He'll protect them. He'll watch over them. He loves it when his people take refuge in him in times of trouble. We inherited a little dog. He's something. But we inherited this little guy, and now he's in the twilight days of his life. He can't go up and down stairs. Well, he can if you give him long enough, but it's not a quick process. And so we have to pick this little guy up, and we have to take him out, and we have to pick him back up, and we have to bring him in. And whenever you put that little guy in your hands, you realize, I have total power over this dog. I could do anything I want to do with this dog. I can do something nice for this dog. I could do something destructive for this dog. This dog has no chance, no chance in what I decide to do. Now, I realize it's a wonderful little dog that God has made, and we love him and we take care of him, and so I'm not going to use the strength that I would have to do something against him. Because this dog has basically been part of our lives and part of our family. And because he's part of our family, I'm not going to use the power I have over that dog in any way other than a good way. And that is exactly what God is saying here. My people are going to see trouble come. They will see different times of trouble that will arise. But those people who take refuge in me, I know those people. I know who they are. And he uses a word for know there that means I know them personally. I understand them personally, that they trust me. They love me. They love my word. They want to apply my word. And what this means is that God actually sees and perceives and knows. He monitors the people that turn to him in times of trouble. He monitors the people who trust him in times of trouble. He monitors the people who put him as a refuge in times of trouble. And there will be times in our lives where we will discover that God is our only refuge and that is all we need. And when we come to that realization, we'll be safe. Because what we'll discover in those moments is God is our personal God. We'll discover that God is our provisional God. We will discover that God is our protective God. We will discover that God is our powerful God, and we will discover that God is our permanent God. We'll have access to God. We'll have acceptability to God, no matter what trouble is going on, no matter who God's tracking down. That's what people who have him as a refuge will discover. No one will ever regret having God as a refuge. You will have a divine shield. You'll have a divine security. You stay close to the Lord. Life ends up happy. And the important thing to see is that God is actually aware of and acquainted with those who are dedicated to him and his word. He will specifically shelter them. That's what he's promising to do. When I get angry to the point that I'm going to track down enemies and do destructive things to them, I actually have an intimate awareness of those who love me and trust me, and I'll protect them even when I'm pouring out my vengeance on different targets. And I think one of the great biblical illustrations of that is Rahab. Jericho was about to be totally destroyed. I mean, they were going to wipe that city out. And yet, one woman decided to turn to the Lord, and it was Rahab. And so as God actually poured out his wrath on this God-mocking city, she and her family were spared. God is good. Don't ever forget that. Even when things are troublesome, God is good to those that take refuge in him. Now, the third revelatory fact is God is a God who will destroy enemies, verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God basically says, I'm going to make a complete end of Nineveh. Again, I remind us, he's saying this in about 650-645 B.C., And he's saying this to the most glamorous, glorious city on the face of the earth. I mean, he's going into this city and he's saying, I want you to understand something. God's going to completely come in here and destroy you and this city. He's going to make an end of it. And that is literally 38 years later what he did. Now, God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. And just as he shelters his people who take refuge in him, his burning anger simmers. And his burning anger sends a flood of destruction judgment against the enemies of God. And by using that noun flood, we know that he has a sweeping judgment in mind because God has used floods, and he did here. He actually used water. He caused the Tigris to flood and actually go in there and partially destroy the city. And what we learn from this verse is you don't want to be classified by God as being one of his enemies. You want to be classified by God as being one who takes refuge in him. There are four observations I want to make from this verse. First of all, there are those that God classifies as his enemies. ayeb, in Hebrew, as his enemies. He says that in verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. There are people that he classifies as his enemies. This is a strong word. What Nahum is saying by using this word is there are people out there, they hate God, they hate his word. They're hostile to it. They're hostile to the word of God, to the will of God. And God says, they're my enemies. You need to know that. They're my enemies. Secondly, God says, I'll overtake them with an overflowing flood. I will sweep the enemies away like a flood and with a flood. And that is literally what God did to destroy the walls of Nineveh. James Montgomery Boyce writes, according to secular accounts, during the final siege of Nineveh by a rebel army of Persians, Medes, Arabians, Babylonians, Unusually heavy rains caused the rivers to flood and undermine the city walls, which then collapsed over a length of 21 furlongs, which is 2.6 miles. The floodwaters destroyed walls, making it easy for enemies to take and destroy Nineveh. God literally did what he's predicting here. I'll send a flood. Now here's an interesting fact that I found in researching the history behind all of this. When the Persians and the Medes and the Arabians and the Babylonians went in, and destroyed Nineveh. The floodwaters did cause the walls to deteriorate, so they had easy access into the city to be able to go in there and take over it. But there was still some ruins that were left. There were still some remnant of ruins that were left. And then what happened a few years later is floodwaters, floodwaters, literally came in from the Tigris River and covered up all the ruins, and it would be centuries until they could even find remnants of where this city existed. As I mentioned in the introduction to the book, when Alexander the Great was conquering this part of the world, he said, I don't even see any evidence of a city even being here. Because God did do literally what he said he was going to do. Now, the third observation is God says, I'll completely make an end of them. That's what he says there in verse 8. I will make a complete end of its site. That's what God promises to do. I'm going to remove them. I'll make a complete end of them. When God has destroyed certain cities, he permits certain cities to be rebuilt For example, when he allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed, he permitted it to be rebuilt. He's never permitted Nineveh to be rebuilt. Never. And that's what he said he was going to do. In fact, the ruins were not even discovered for hundreds of years. And finally, God says, I'll pursue them into darkness. Now, that's very interesting. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. That certainly means I'll track them down. It doesn't matter how long it takes, or if it takes all night. It means more than that, and we've seen that when we're studying the doctrine of hell. Because one of the things that is clearly taught about the doctrine of hell, when we've tracked that through the Bible, is it is a place of horrible darkness. A place that uses some Hebrew words that would imply it's so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. And what God is basically promising here is I'm going to actually take my enemies and I'm literally going to pursue my enemies. I'm going to chase them right into hell and they're never going to see my light again. They'll never see it again. Now an enemy of God can be a nation. An enemy of God can be a state. It can be an individual. History has shown that when God targets any one of those, that's exactly what happens. He targeted Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, swept them away. He targeted Nineveh, swept it away. He targeted Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Alexander the Great, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, swept them away. He targeted Adolf Hitler, swept him away. He targeted Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, that's in our lifetime, he swept them away. You make God your enemy, and you have just put yourself and sentenced yourself to total destruction, because this is what he'll do with any enemy. Oh, he'll give him time. He'll give him time because he's slow to anger. But when he reaches a point where his anger is burning, this is what he'll do. He'll pursue him, he'll track them down, he'll destroy them. Now the fourth revelatory fact is God is a God who cannot be defeated, verses nine to twelve. You're not going to be able to beat God. And there are some key things we learn here about this, a couple of observations we want to make. First of all, whatever many devise against the Lord will fail. We read in verse 9, Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice like tangled thorns, and like those who are drunken with their drink, they're consumed as stubble completely withered. Now the you here is a second person plural, indicating many different people can be enemies of God. Enemies of God do devise things against the Lord. And I think that word devise is interesting because there are people that literally think about things that are contrary to God. They literally think about that's where sin begins, by the way. Sin and rebellion begins in the mind. I mean, people start thinking about things and looking for things and longing for things, and then they end up working it out in life, but it starts in the mind. God says, I know what people think, and I know what's going on in their brains, I see their thoughts. And what's described here is people that actually plan to do things that are diabolically contrary to him and his word. And the PL stem of the Hebrew verb means this is intensive, eager action. So what these people are eager to do is they're eager to get involved in something contrary to God and his word. They actually devise something. They're eager. They're eager to get out there and do something that is actually against the word of God. God says, Here's what I'll do to you. If you're the kind of person or the nation or the state who's devising things that are contrary to me and my word, here are six actions that you need to know I'll take. Action number one, I'll make a complete end of you. That's what he says in verse 9. He will make a complete end of it. That's a promise. He knows thoughts. He can see what people are planning and plotting. His plan, his promise is you start devising things that are contrary to me and my word and I may give you a gap of time to come up with your schemes but I'll make a complete end of you. Secondly, I'll not give you a second chance. He says in verse 9, distress will not rise up twice. God said, all I need is one judgment, that'll be enough. I won't need a second one. When I'm angry to the point where I decide I'm going to move and I'm going to pour out my anger on someone else, I don't need more than one judgment. One judgment will be enough, and that'll take care of the problem. And I also think in making an application to anybody who would be listening to this is that you can cross a line, I do think, where you never get another chance. You can actually cross a line where God says, I've given you enough chances, you're done. That's a scary thing to think about. But when God decides it's time to move in judgment, he won't need a second judgment. One will be sufficient to get the job done. One judgment is sufficient to save us. One judgment at the cross I mean, that's all he needed. He needed the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross and that one judgment there at the cross can save us from all of our sins. One Bema seat judgment that we will face as believers will be enough to give us rewards or cost us rewards. He won't need a bunch of judgments. He'll just need one. Which brings us to the third action. The enemies of God will be tangled. He says in verse 10, like tangled thorns. Most enemies of God don't realize this. They're just tangling themselves into a mess. I want to draw an important application from this statement, by the way. God is the one who sets people free. It's the enemies of God who tangle them up in one mess after another. When you see a life that ends up a tangled up mess and it's going after one disaster after another disaster, they didn't get there by following the Lord. They're tangled up in those messes because they somehow align themselves with things that were contrary to God and his word. God says, that's what happens to my enemies. They end up in a tangled disaster. Fourthly, they'll walk in a stupor. I find verse 10 interesting. The text says, and like those who are drunken with their drink. Drunkenness is a serious sin. Drunkenness is a sin that's referred to in the Old Testament, it's referred to in the New Testament. It's something that God does not want his people involved with. And if a person is getting drunk, they need to know this is the kind of sin that God's enemies commit. They're a bunch of drunks. And if a person is committing that sin, walking around in some stupor, they're involved in a lifestyle that actually brings about the judgment of God. And I think that what he's referring to here is when God does decide to pour out his anger, there will be people who will be in this party atmosphere. They'll be drinking and just walking around in some stupor, not expecting your time's up. You're going to face now the judgment of God. The fifth action is the enemies of God will be consumed. That's an interesting word that he uses there. He says, and they are consumed. It is a word that would indicate that they're burned with fire. It is interesting that archaeological discoveries that were made concerning Nineveh discovered that there was a lot of charred wood. They discovered there was charcoal and ashes. Some of the ashes were two inches thick. So God literally did consume the city and he caused a lot of it to be burned down, never to be rebuilt again. The sixth action is the enemies of God will wither. Verse 10, as stubble, completely withered. It's the word "mela" in Hebrew, which is full dryness. What God is basically saying is enemies are not going to flourish. They're not going to be fruitful. They will deteriorate. What you will discover is an enemy of God will become less and less and eventually wither away. Oh, they may have their shining moment in the sun briefly, but it'll be brief and then they'll wither away and they'll be gone. So there's the first observation. Whoever devises plans against the Lord, this is what God says I'm going to do. The second observation is, whatever one plots against the Lord is going to fail. Verse 11, from you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full of strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Now, The pronoun you here is a singular pronoun which goes after some individual. Many believe it was Sennacherib who was the king who authorized during the days of Hezekiah the military to go in and destroy Jerusalem and God was targeting him. But behind all of this is another wicked counselor. It's none other than Satan. And ultimately, Satan is behind the enemies of God. Satan's the one who comes up with the plots and the plans, and he infiltrates people's brains. There are people who plot evil, and they plan evil, and they plan things that are wicked. But God says, I don't care who the person is, whether it is Sennacherib or Satan, they can't outsmart God. And I'm reminded of the illustration in the New Testament that Jesus gave of that rich man who thought he was just so smart and powerful. Left God out of his life. Man, I've hit the big time. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to put up new barns. I'm taking it in. I've got all this to do, and I'm just going to build new barns because I've made it to the big time. I mean, that guy was as rich as George Soros. Just talking about his billions. And the Lord said, you fool. You fool. Tonight, your soul's going to be taken from you. Oh, you can have whatever you want, but you haven't thought about what eternity is going to give you, and you have been a fool. There are people that appear to be so full of strength, so full of power, they appear to be so pious, so impressive, God said, I'll cut them down. They'll pass away. I'll see to it that it doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they have, doesn't matter how many of whatever they had, they're no match for me. God says, I want you to know whoever plots things against me, I will come after them. Which brings us to the fifth revelatory fact. God is a God who will save his faithful people. Verse 12 and 13, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. It's interesting that these enemies are described as having like full strength and they have big numbers. And that is intimidating. I mean, when you're a person who loves the Lord and you're trying to apply the scriptures and you see people that seem to be in powerful positions and they have huge numbers on their side, it is intimidating. But God says, I want you to know, for those of you that have me as your refuge, I want to promise you this. Number one, I will afflict you no longer. In other words, there are limits to what I will allow to happen to my people. Always remember that. When you find yourself in some troubling situation, and God is your refuge, and you love the Lord, you love the Word of God, always remember there are limits to what God is going to let you go through, and me. Secondly, God promises, I'll take the heavy yoke of enemies away. He says in verse 13, so now I will break his yoke bar from upon you. You know, God's people, really, we're not free. We have to pay taxes. Some of that tax money goes to evil stuff. Promote evil stuff, we have to pay, but it goes to evil stuff. We are threatened, we have laws, some of which are contrary to God. God says, look, I'll take that yoke off you. Just be patient, just snuggle up next to me, let me handle this. Thirdly, God says, I'll remove the shackles that hindered you. When you feel taunted, when you feel afraid, hindered by arrogant, power-crazed people, he says, you just wait, you just watch. You wait and you watch. Now, when Nahum is saying this, I remind us again, he's saying this to people in the most powerful city in the world, who would have never dreamed 38 years from now, you won't even exist. But that is what happened in history. Which brings us to the sixth fact, God is a God who will eliminate and annihilate his contemptible enemies. Verse 14, the Lord has issued a command concerning you, your name will no longer be perpetuated, I will cut off idol and image. From the house of your gods, I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. God said, I'm going to cut you down. You won't be able to stop it. It'll come swift, it will come fast, and it will come at you from every angle. And there are four facts that he reveals. God has commanded what he's going to do to his enemies. This is the command of the Lord. He says, I'm commanding this concerning you. Once he's reached that level, he doesn't go back on it. So when God says, for example, I'm commanding that my judgment hit this nation, I'm commanding that my judgment hits this state or this individual who's my enemy, he's not going to go back on it. Once he reaches that level, it's going to hit. Secondly, God will remove the memory of the name of the enemies. He says in verse 14, your name will no longer be perpetuated. God says, I'll bury your memory. When God promises, I'll cut off the name, he's not only saying I'm cutting off the memory, but also the progeny. There won't be any more in existence from this city at all. I mean, have you ever met somebody who says, oh yeah, I was an Assyrian from Nineveh? Nah, he's cut them off. They're no longer in existence. He literally wiped them out. Thirdly, God will cut off and cut down all idols. Now, it's interesting he uses two nouns for idols. He uses the noun idol and then the noun image. The noun image has to do with you heat metal. This is just mind-boggling to me that people can be so stupid and so anti-God because the word idol or image means that you heat metal, you pour it into a mold, you make an idol, then you set it there and you worship it. Now, how stupid is that? You make something with your own hands, out of metal, you have a mold, you pour it into the mold, and then you set it there and then you worship it. God says, I'll bring them all down, every one of them. And finally, he said, I'll prepare their grave. In verse 14, he says, I will put you in the grave and prepare your grave. What he basically says is, I'm going to kill you. See, people don't want to hear this about God. They want a God of love and a God of forgiveness and toleration. That's what they want to hear. God says, no, no, you push me to an angry point. I'll give you the death penalty. I literally would take your life. So people who hate God and his word they're on a course of God's executing them. And he says, here's the way I see it. You're contemptible in his sight. And that word contemptible means God says, you're vile. You have no interest in me. You have no interest in my word. I want you to know how I see you. You're vile. And this text teaches God targets individuals. So he searches people's hearts and minds and he searches people and he knows what they think about and he knows what their attitude is toward him. And when those people are in a relationship with him that is not interested in his word, they don't care what his word says. They'll do just the opposite of the word of God says. God said, you're vile. You've reached the vile level. And now you get me to an angry point and I'll kill you. Which brings us to the seventh revelatory fact He wraps it up by, says, there is one coming from God who will forever restore the people. There's an end prophecy here. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He's completely cut off. He's cut off completely. This is an amazing promise to the nation Israel. The promise to the nation Israel is the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah is going to come. He will come on the mountains and he'll bring good news to you. He will come on the mountains and he'll bring peace to the land. He will come on the mountains and restore your worship that will take place in national Israel, and he will come on the mountains and completely remove evil forever. Now, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, took this quote here, the feet of him who brings good news and who announces peace, and he used it in reference to Jesus Christ. And what he said is the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's the good news. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the one who will bring peace to the world. He's the one that's going to restore everything back into a right relationship with the Lord. But as we wait for that to happen, sometimes in life we do face enemies. And some of those enemies have a lot of power. They have a lot of prominence. But keep this in the back of your mind. They're no match for your God. And God will deliver faithful people. He'll take them down and take them out. Oh, it may not come as quick as we'd like to see it. But you have God's word on it, it will come. What God wants of us as we go through these troubling times is we turn to him as our refuge. In fact, this should be one of the wonderful things that comes out of the time in which we're living right now. We should be turning to the Lord as our refuge, seeking him and seeking his word. That's what Nahum was after when he wrote this book. But I wrap it up with this statement. If you face God... In your sin, based on your own works, you're going to face the wrath of God, the anger of God, because he's made it possible for every person, every sinner, to face him with the righteousness of his Son. And any person who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forever saved and never have to worry about facing the wrath or the anger of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We pray that we would learn the lesson that Nahum was trying to communicate to the people of Israel. We need it. We need to realize that in troubled times, you're still God, and you are a God who does get angry, and you are a God who does move. You're slow to anger. We're grateful for that, Lord, because if that weren't true, none of us would probably even be in existence, so we thank you for that. But we pray that you would move soon, that we would see you take care of some of these evil things that are happening. We want to thank you for the church and thank you for the people of the church. Thank you for this food and fellowship time to follow. We pray your blessing on that. In Jesus' name, amen.